Um, you can pull out your Bibles to Matthew 5, or if you've got one of your scripture journal, you can open that up uh, to the picture that looks like this in, the, in that scripture journal. Uh, for those of you who are maybe new, uh, we began the series in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago, and we created these scripture journals where it has a Sermon on the Mount in the journal, um, and every week that text is right there in the journal. If you want one of those, there, and the, there's a few back there in the sound booth, you can grab one of those real quick. Uh, that's our gift to you. Uh, what we've asked is this, is that every week you'd wrestle with this question. And which sermon am I actually listening to? Am I listening to the Sermon on the Mount or am I listening to the Sermon of the World? And which one am I actually practicing? Am I putting the Sermon on the Mount in practice or am I practicing the Sermon of the World? And so we're just journaling through that together, wrestling through it together. And this morning is no different. We're going to continue where we left off last week. Jesus is in this section in the Sermon on the Mount, which if you don't understand, if you don't kind of take it within its context, it can actually be pretty confusing. He's giving these six statements that are pretty well known, pretty famous, uh, where he says, you've heard it said, dot, 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 kind of fill in the blank, but I say to you, here it is, okay? This is what's really going on. And he usually ends it with this kind of crazy hard to understand, kind of shocking statement at the end. And last week we talked about lust, right? This idea of adultery and lust, right? Jesus says, I mean, you've heard it said, um, but I say to you, right? Anyone, anyone who looks upon another woman, right, already commits adultery in his, in his heart. So it's already there. Um, and it kind of gives a shocking statement. And he's going to layer upon that this morning. He's going to give another teaching this morning. He's going to take it a step further. And he's going to talk about divorce. Divorce. Which I realize as soon as I say it, as soon as it, come out, it comes out of my mouth, that already in this room that there is um, men just in uneasiness and an unrest that falls upon us um, as the word comes out of my mouth. Divorce is a touchy subject, no doubt. My guess is that everyone in this room knows someone who has been divorced. Uh, maybe you have been through a divorce or your parents have been through divorce. And those, those memories for you are as fresh and as real as if it were yesterday. Maybe for you it was recent. Maybe for you it was decades ago. But that, that pain and that sorrow that maybe you've buried deep down, it's still there. And as we talk about it, it kind of rears its head. And you may have many thoughts and feelings about divorce, but what really matters is not what I think. Hopefully, hopefully, no one in this room came to hear Josh Knight's opinion this morning. If you did, that's sad. Um, and it's not very good. You don't want it, right? That's not, that's not why we're here. And frankly, I don't mean this harshly, um, we didn't come here for your opinion either. It does not matter what you think or what I think. Right? What matters is what does Christ, the final authority on all of our lives, what does he have to say? What, what is the truth that he has on offer for us this morning in the Sermon on the Mount? So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Um, and so let's, let's wrestle through this together. Um, verse 31, here's what Jesus actually says. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay. Two short little verses. Should be really easy for us, right? No. 
This is such a tough text, and we have to remember, every time we come to this, I want us to remember the context of the text, okay? There's three different parts of the context, right? First, as we talked about last week, what Jesus is doing in these six statements, right, where he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and he kind of gives a teaching, corrects that teaching, and gives a shocking statement around that teaching, okay? What he's doing every time is he's pointing back to the righteousness of the Pharisees, we got to re- read this within the context of that idea. Verse 20, where he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the first shocking statement. And then all of these six kind of flow out of that statement. All of these six, he is, he is ripping the righteousness of the Pharisees out and just exposing it. He says, you are not righteous. I know you think you're righteous, but let me show you that you're not. There's no resolve. There's no conclusion. Like the audience is just kind of left just like, oh, like I thought I was good, but now I realize I'm not good. And he just keeps layering it on more and more and more and more. And so the context of this text, uh, kind of the other two parts, is that number one, right, he's pointing to the original law. So, so ancient Israel, the law of Moses, you've heard it said in the law of Moses this. But I say to you, kind of in his context, in his day, let me, let, me, let me address the teaching that's taking place in my day, the context within my day. So the context of the law of Moses um, comes from Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, um, God speaks once again through Moses and gives a law for the people around marriage and divorce. The law reads this way, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 through 4. And this is where Jesus is getting this statement, you've heard it said. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce, comes from this text. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, reads this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, the latter man, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then the former man, the original husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring the sin upon the land which the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. Okay. What? What is going on? Um, at first glance, okay, when you first read this and you kind of first kind of begin to like think about it uh, at a little bit different, dip, deeper level, it's really confusing and it seems harsh towards the, the woman, right? She's Right? The first guy doesn't like her. The second guy hates her. Right? And they just got to kick her out of the house. It's like, it's like what, is, what is happening here? Here's what, here's what you must understand about this text in particular, Deuteronomy 24. It was written originally, whether you realize it or not, it was written originally to protect the rights of the woman in the marriage. That's what's actually going on here. In the first part of this text, what, what he's saying is this. You cannot just put your wife out of your house for no good reason, right? Men were just saying, men, I'm done. I don't want you to be my wife anymore. Just put them out of the house. You can not do that. You can't just dump a woman on the street. You cannot do that. The law, this law is designed to protect women from the thoughtlessness of divorce. If you are going to be flipping about divorce, you're not going to think it through. Man, this law is going to make sure that you do. 
It's now a legal matter. Again, you can't just dump a woman on the street. You need a legitimate cause. You need a legitimate reason. You need to put that in writing and make sure that she has a copy of that writing. You got to remember in in ancient Israel, and for a woman to be just kind of cast out onto the street, all safety, all security for that woman is now gone. She's not going to go get a job. She's not going to now have money. She has no way to provide for herself. There's no way to provide for herself. It's a different time, a different culture. There, there's, no, there's no one there to help her. You can't just say, for no good reason, I'm going to throw you to the wolves of society. You cannot do that. There must be a legal reason, and it must be put in writing, and it needs to be legitimate. And the second part of the law, the second part, which is even a little bit more confusing, um, is to make the man think twice. Are you sure this is what you want to do? Because the woman, the woman is not your property, okay? In in ancient Israel, the women, sorry ladies, in ancient Israel, women were viewed as as property. Um, And there's there's more on this in the New Testament, and we we can get into that a different day. But here's here's what Moses is saying, what God through Moses is saying. If you think you're going to just kind of send her away, like she's a piece of property, and then when she finds another man who's more handsome than you are, that's richer than you are. When that beautiful, talented, sophisticated, smart woman finds a man who is way better than you and you get all jealous inside because that's what's gonna happen, fellas, you can't go get her back. You cannot go to that man and say, she's actually mine. because She's not yours. You put her out, you put her off, you gave her away, that's it. And even if that man changes his mind or dies, you can never have her back. There's a consequence to your action, fellas. That's that's what Moses is getting at. He's trying to protect the rights of the woman in that day. Now, why? Why is this caveat added to the law? Well, because of our hardness of heart. Jesus goes on later to say, later in the Gospel of Matthew. But even more than that, because marriage is a big deal to God. Marriage is a massive, massive, massive deal to God, okay? Marriage, designed by God, to be a covenant, not a contract, okay? A covenant, not a contract. Uh, last Friday, we're still kind of hyped up about what happened here last Friday at Flourishing Grace. Uh, we had an amazing event right here. We had uh, what's called Night to Shine. Many of you were here for Night to Shine. Um, we had 100 special guests. We had 70-some caretakers, 200-some-odd volunteers, plus all of the staff, safety, security, um, DJ, cooking, uh, food, food staff, like all these people in the building is amazing. We had all these contracts in order to make that night happen, right? We had contracts for the DJ. We had contracts for a photo booth. We had contracts for food. We had contracts for massages for the caretakers upstairs. We had all these different contracts, contracts for rental gear. And a contract says, man, you deliver these goods. You give this amount of time, this amount of food, this amount of uh, whatever it may be, and we're going to pay you this much money for that. So if this, then this. That's a contract. If you do this, if you follow through on your end of the deal, you follow through on your end of the bargain, then I will follow through on my end of the bargain. Not so in a covenant. When we enter into the covenant of marriage, right, we say things, we take a vow, and we say things like, for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health. That means that if you get a 
in a disease that is uncurable and you're going to be bedridden for the rest of your life and I'm going to be, have to be the one that cares for you in every single way for the rest of your life. I'm going to be the one who feeds you and bathes you and cleanses you because of this sickness. I'm not going anywhere. For richer or for poor, if you lose your job and you can't get a new job and we go completely, totally broke and we're living on the street, I'm not going anywhere. For richer or for poor, for better or for worse, no matter what happens, no matter what comes, no matter how old you become, no matter how wrinkly you become, it does not matter. I'm not going anywhere. What do you have to do in order to gain that from me? Nothing. This is the covenant we're making. This is the covenant we're making. It's a lifelong covenant. Whenever I marry couples, um, I have three rules. I used to have four, and now I only have three. I'm pretty, I'm pretty easy, okay? Listen, you want to have a crazy wedding? I'm your God. Like pretty much whatever the bride and groom want to do, I'm down for it. Man, you want to you have crazy colors? You want to dance down the aisle? I don't even care. Like, whatever you want. I got three rules, though. And one of those rules has to do with the vows. The vows must be serious, okay? You cannot say, I vow to bake you fresh cookies every day for the rest of your life. Nope, not happening in my wedding. Not happening. If I'm officiating in that wedding, it's got to be something serious. It's got to be serious vows. And number two, they have to be lifelong vows. It must end in some form of until death do us part, for as long as we both shall live, or, or whatever. however you want to communicate that. doesn't matter to me, but it must be communicated. Because these are lifelong vows. And whether you realize it or not, God is the one who bears witness to the vows. Yes, your bridesmaids, yes, your groomsmen, but God is the primary signer, the co-signer of those vows. He is the one who is the witness of those vows. Here's how Malachi puts it in Malachi 2, 14 through 16. He writes it this way. He says, the Lord was witness. Who's the witness? God's the witness. The Lord was witness between you and your wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless or unfaithful. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he, did God not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Here's what it's saying. And God, not only is he the witness, not only is he watching over it, he's the creator of it. He's creating this. He's making them one with a portion of his own spirit. In Christian marriage, in a supernatural way, God is entering in, putting the seal of his spirit on that union, on that relationship, saying, man, these two are becoming one through the power of my own spirit, and a portion of my spirit is now going to go with them and be with them. His own spirit. And what was he seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves and your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For, listen, for if a man... The man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the, Lord of, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves and do not be faithless. Interpretation. If you want to kindle the anger of the almighty God against you, cheat on your spouse and leave them. You, you want to cover your garment in violence, the violence of an almighty God. Cheat on your spouse and walk out on them. Le leave them for somebody else. 
You, you want to enrage the most holy God. Here's how you can do it. So what I'm trying to get you to see, what I'm hoping that you're understanding in this kind of Deuteronomy 1 passage, in this Malachi passage, and in, in kind of in, in this talking of covenant, is that marriage is a big deal to God. He has designed it. He's created it. He is protecting it with his word. He's protecting it with his law. He is in it, like in a, in a supernatural way. He's a part of it, right? Christian marriage is insanely important to God. Are we tracking so far on just that? Okay, we can go back. We can start over. Um, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. Um, are we tracking so far? Okay. Marriage is insanely important to God. It's incredibly important to God. So we must understand that context, the context of Deuteronomy 1, 24, right? And how God has taken special care and special effort um, in the context of Christian marriage. There's a, he loves marriage. He's designed it. It's important to him. Now we move into the context of Jesus in first century Israel. So fast forward 1,500-ish years from ancient Israel to kind of the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, or just before the turn of the century in Israel, there are two major schools of thought um, created by two major rabbis of the day. There's two major schools. There's the house of Hillel and the house of Shema'i, right? These are the, these are the two schools, right? So you have the house of Hillel and the house of Shema'i, okay? The, these two men, right, um, Rabbi Hillel, or as he's better known, uh, the Elder Hillel. You can Google him later and learn all about him. Uh, Elder Hillel um, is just kind of this, he's this amazing kind of famous rabbi of the day, turn of the century Israel, and then Elder Shema'i, um, this, this famous rabbi. And these two guys kind of set up these two houses or these two schools. Think of it like political parties, okay? The elders or these, these rabbis, um, I mean, in, in first century Israel, the Jewish culture, okay, uh, there's no separation between church and state, okay? This is a political religious society. The, the religion is the law, and the law is the religion. So these are, these are the two figures. These are the two guys. And they have all these other rabbis and all these other disciples and all these other students underneath them, okay? And they don't agree on anything. On one side, right, Rabbi Hillel um, is super liberal, right, religiously liberal. Um, and then over here is Shema'i, and he's super conservative. He's like a, uh, on, the far, on the far right, religiously, right? Does this sound familiar to anybody? Anybody, anybody feel like, I've seen this before someplace, like super, super liberals on one side and super, super conservatives on the other side. Like I, I feel like I've experienced at some point in time in my life, right? It's 2020, we're in an election year and I'm gonna stop talking about it right there because we're, all, we got, we're already on divorce, okay? We don't got time to get into politics this morning, all right? No time for that. Here's what you need to know. These guys disagreed on everything from celebrations and ceremonies, like ancient Jewish customs. I think we should have this celebration this way. No, 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 clearly the law says we should have it this way. No, 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 we should have the party this way. No, 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 the law says we should have the party this way. Uh, to diets, what people should eat, how to handle debt, right? One of the big things of, of uh, Rabbi Hillel was that, uh, that the year of Jubilee, so in ancient Jewish culture, right, every seven years, like all debt is forgiven. And it's just like, okay, debt, debt is gone. El Elder Hillel says, okay, yeah, but then you gotta pay it back, okay? We're not, we're not going to do that. Like, that's, that's not what the law actually meant. It's not what he actually intended. And so the, he, he was the one who kind of changed that law. Um, 
They, they disagreed on how to treat the poor. And of course, they disagreed on marriage and divorce. The question of the day between these two schools was how should we interpret Deuteronomy 24, verse 1? That, that was the question. Now, the school of Shema'i, the more conservative school, interpreted the text of Deuteronomy in such a manner as to reach the conclusion that the husband could not divorce his wife except for cause. And that cause must be sexual immorality. In Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, listen, because he found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So that right there, what does Moses mean by indecency was the debate of the day. What does he mean by indecency? Shammai says what he means by indecency is sexual immorality. It, it means adultery. The wife has cheated on the husband with another man. That is the only grounds for divorce. Now, on the other end, you have the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel, however, held that the husband need not assign any reason whatsoever. That any act on her part which displeased him entitled him to give her a bill of divorce. You must give her the bill. You must give her the certificate. But you can give her one whenever you want for any reason you want. Any indecency at all, right? If she looks indecent that day to you, that's enough. If the meal she prepared is indecent to you, that's enough. Like anything that you would find, you could put your finger on and say, man, that to me is indecent. I'm, I'm the one who gets to interpret what indecent is. And if for any reason, I can, I can write that bill, put it in your hand and say, we're, we're done. Now, what you must know and what you must understand is that the school of Hillel wins out on this argument. In fact, they win out on all the arguments. The highest authority in the day of Jesus, first century Israel, amongst the Pharisees, the political religious elite of the day, was the school of Hillel. The teachings of Hillel were the highest regarded teachings, religious teachings, by the Pharisees in that day. So the Pharisees, on everything, side with Hillel. And so the Pharisees say, a man in first century Israel, only a man, can divorce his wife for any reason he wants, as long as he puts the certificate or the bill of divorce in her hand. That's the context of Jesus in that day. Now, I said at the beginning of this that it does not matter what I think and it does not matter what you think, nor does it matter what Hillel or Shema'i think. What does Jesus say? What he says in the Sermon on the Mount is this. We read it earlier, I'm gonna read it again. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now, right there, the Pharisees say yes. That's right. That's what we've been teaching. Finally, this guy agrees with us on something. Give her a certificate of divorce. That is the righteous requirement of the law, according to the Pharisees, right? What do we see the context of the passages, ultimately? Destroying the righteousness of the Pharisees, okay? Jesus is dismantling the righteousness of the Pharisees. The righteous requirement of the law, according to the Pharisees, is that as long as you put that certificate in your hand, you're good. Jesus goes on, though, in verse 32 and says, but, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus is standing up and correcting what would have been the most accepted teaching on divorce of his day. 
He's speaking right into it. What he's saying in verse 32 would have been wildly unpopular in his day. Wildly unpopular. And friends, it's wildly unpopular in our day. The statement in verse 32 is the shocking statement. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's an insane statement to make. The Pharisees had created an easy divorce culture, a culture filled with lust. And so many people in the audience would have been divorced. And so many of them, including the Pharisees, would have been married to divorced women. And Jesus says, if that's true of you, you are guilty. Guilty under the law of Moses of a crime punishable by death. You've committed adultery. And your righteousness before God is stripped bare. Jesus reaches into the righteousness of the Pharisees, rips it out, just kind of lays it on the ground, and offers no resolution. He doesn't, he doesn't kind of land the plane, kind of put a bow on it. He's like, there it is. The, he's just exposing how broken and how unrighteous they actually are. Those who, who, those who pr- appear so righteous and so put together, Jesus says, no, you're actually not. You need a greater righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me show you how broken their righteousness actually is. And that's what he's doing here. Now fast forward 2,000 years. Is this not the culture of our day? In America, there's one divorce every 36 seconds. It's nearly 2,400 divorces every day. 16,800 divorces every week. 876,000, 876,000 divorces every year. Nearly a million divorces a year in our country. Our culture is not unlike the culture of Jesus. So often we wanna say, well that was then and this is now. But there's nothing new under the sun. It's not different. Jesus' teaching on divorce flows from his teaching on lust and adultery, which is the number one cause for divorce. It's no coincidence, it's not a mistake, it's not a, it's not a happenstance that Jesus preaches on adultery and lust and then goes right into divorce. What he's saying is you've created a culture, the Pharisees have created a culture where lust is okay but adultery isn't. And in doing so, in doing so, you've created a culture that breeds, it breeds divorce. When men and women are free to lust, eventually it's going to grow into adultery. It's going to grow into divorce. The same is true in our culture. We created a culture of acceptable lust in the sexual liberation and revolution of the 1960s, which led to an easy divorce culture in the 1970s, which led to the breakdown of the family in the 1980s, which led to the hookup culture of the, 90, of the 90s. And, and ever since the late 90s, divorce has actually been on the decrease in the United States of America. Divorce rates are declining since the 90s because marriage rates are declining. People have stopped getting married. We've created a culture where it's acceptable to just hook up and to, to use somebody just for sex or just for emotions. And we don't actually need to put a ring on it, as Beyonce would say. This has led to the redefinition of sexuality in the early 2000s. 
and will soon lead to, whether you realize it or not, will lead to the end of sex. Research now shows that kind of in this generation coming up is that the, the, they're having less sex than any generation for the past 25 years um, in this generation that's happening right now. What's happening right now, kind of in this redefinition of sexuality, I mean, who is to say who, what gender I am to love or not love or what gender I even am, right? what's happening is, I mean, not only have people given up on marriage, but now they're giving up on sex. And I know for some of the older folks in the room, like, that's not possible. Um, mark my words. Just give it like five years and you will look back and all of the research will show and all of the news will talk about how and young adults are now just not having sex anymore. It's a weird, shocking thing, but it is happening right now in our culture. All of the psychologists and sociologists are pointing to this thing and they're warning us that this is what is coming. And friends, we must remember that all of this, all of this flows out of a lack of righteousness, right? Verse 21, I've already quoted a few times. It's all flowing out of a lack of righteousness. When we lose our hunger for true righteousness, we lose our hunger for purity. We lose our hunger for commitment. We lose our hunger for marriage. All of it flows out of a lack of righteousness. I read this quote from John Owen last week. I want to read it again because I believe in these six statements, this is what is happening. John Owen says it this way. He says, it is an innate principle that the soul will not continue worshiping God. You will stop worshiping God if it is not discovering the beauty and comeliness of such worship. If you found beauty, more beauty, right, in another woman or in another man, if you, if you think that that's more attractive to you, you will stop, your soul will stop worshiping God. So when a man loses all spiritual sense and savor of the things of God, they will invent substitutes, if you stop worshiping God, you will invent other things, outward purposes, gorgeous forms of worship using images and pictures and other such things. You will lust, you will create adultery, and you'll create divorce unless men see beauty and delight in the worship of God. They will act adverse to it. So see God then as the eternal spring of all beauty. Love Christ as the hope of all nations. Admire the Holy Spirit as the great beautifier of souls. To acquaint the soul with these divine attractions is to weaken the aversion of indwelling sin has within us to the things of God. You see, friends, the, the secret of a healthy Christian marriage is not in your relationship with your spouse. It's in your relationship with God. The secret of a healthy, beautiful Christian marriage is not in your relationship with your, with your spouse. It's in your relationship with God. As we pursue righteousness, his righteousness, as we cling to him, as we see him as the great beautifier of souls, as we see him as our greatest joy and our greatest treasure and our greatest delight, our marriages, our marriages will flourish in that because we will be satisfied in him, not longing and creating these false things, these false forms of worship. The secret to a beautiful Christian marriage is our relationship with God, not our relationship with each other. So, to the singles in the room, I'm gonna say this. Maybe you are, you've never been married, or maybe you were married once, and um, you're not anymore for whatever reason, and you're thinking about maybe getting married again. Uh, I wanna give you just a little bit of advice as a side note this morning. Listen, you, you need to wait until you find someone who loves Jesus far more than they will ever love you. This is so critical, it's so crucial. And you want a flourishing Christian 
marriage and you find someone who loves Jesus far more than they'll ever love you. Uh, the other day, there was a conversation in my house. Um, it's well known in my house, among my family, that I have a love affair with sriracha. Um, every, every morning at breakfast, sriracha. Uh, every time I go home for lunch, sriracha. Um, at least 75% of the meals that we eat at dinner time, sriracha. There's like a few things I won't put it on, but pretty much everything, even the things you would think is pretty gross, I'll put it on. Um, and the other day we were having dinner, and of course there was sriracha there, and my, my son Winston, he says, Dad, do you love anything more than sriracha? And I said, I love you, buddy, which that's the right answer, fellas, um, dad's in the room. I said, I love you more than sriracha. And uh, then he asked me a question, because this is who Winston is. He says, Dad, what do you love more than me? I'm warning you fellas, that's a trick right there. That's, you gotta be careful. But I look right at him. I said, Winston, I love Jesus more than I love you. That boy needs to know from a young age that his dad loves Jesus more than he loves anything in the world. And that's okay. And that is totally acceptable and is right and it is a good pursuit of his little soul to, to strive to love Jesus more than he loves anything in this world, more than he loves his dad, more than he loves his mom, more than he loves his brother. He, can, he needs to love Jesus more than he loves anything in this world. It's good and it's right. And, there, and he's five years old and so he might tell you that he loves Jesus more than anything in the world, but the evidence suggests that he actually loves donuts more than he loves Jesus. But my prayer is that one day, hopefully, Hopefully, Winston will love Jesus more than anything he loves in the world. From a young age, man, we've got to instill that into our kids because that's going to be the key to his marriage someday, is loving Jesus more than he loves his spouse. Where are we? Here's what I want to do. Just for the rest of our time, which we are out of, um, what I want to do just for the next few minutes, I, I want to answer just a few questions because I know, listen, the problem with this text, I said it earlier, Jesus is not teaching on divorce. He's not. He's not giving an exhaustive teaching on divorce in marriage. Um, he's just, he's throwing this statement out there to rip apart the righteousness of the Pharisees. But what I want to do just for the rest of our time, real quick, is just kind of throw out some questions around marriage and around divorce um, and just kind of speak into it briefly. We, we're out of time, but I want to speak into it briefly just so we're not kind of all left hanging here um, this morning. The first question is this, what do I do right now if I feel like my marriage is good? Like right now, like my marriage is, is awesome. Like my spouse is like loves me and I know they love me and I, I love him or I love her so unbelievably much. And like, it's just like, we're on this like level of just goodness. Communication is up and we're not arguing and fighting over every little thing. Like we're, we're in agreement over finances. Praise the Lord. Like all of these different things, like it's just good right now. What do we do? And get on your knees and thank God because that is a gift from his hands. He's protected you from yourself. He's protected you from yourself. That's not your own doing. That's a gift from his hands. So man, cry out and praise him for that. And then you need to get to work. You need to get to work. You need to increase your appetite for his righteousness, even when things are good. Even when things are good, you gotta increase your appetite for righteousness. I had a friend who said this recently. He said, man, in all of the, in, in all of the, 
counseling sessions I've ever done. And this is true for me, man. I've been in ministry for now 16, 17 years. I don't know, I've lost track. And I've got friends who've been in ministry for way longer. We've, we've walked through people who are going through all kinds of marital problems and, and on the brink of divorce and coming out of divorce, right? Never once, never once have we ever counseled somebody who said, man, I'm thinking about leaving my spouse because they're just, they're just too much like Jesus. No one's ever said that. I'm thinking about leaving my spouse because I'm just too righteous. That's, ne that's, never, that's never been a conversation I've ever had with anybody. That's never, that's never happened. And so, man, no matter if your marriage is healthy or your marriage is falling apart, man, we must increase our hunger for righteousness. We must increase our hunger for righteousness. We've got to get to work on this. I know it's hard. Righteousness is hard. Ripping your eyes away from lustful desires is hard work. It's hard work. Breaking off relationships where you have built this kind of emotional connection, ripping that apart, that's hard work. Righteousness is hard, but it's way easier than restoration. Right, my, my friend said, it's like getting the oil changed in your car. Nobody likes to go get, the, get their oil changed. Nobody likes that. It's not fun. Nobody likes to do it themselves, right? You don't actually enjoy it. Nobody likes to go in and get it done, right? When you go to get your oil changed, you got to go in there. You got to sit there. You got to wait. You got to pay money. I have to do it every 3,000 miles. I know some of you got like 10,000 mile cars, which I think is amazing. But my car is like old, man. Okay, it's, it's old. It needs it every 3,000 miles. I put it off a little bit. I'm just going to say that. I put it off. But I mean, every 3,000 miles, I gotta go in there and I gotta pay money, I gotta get this done. But guess what? That's way easier and way less expensive than having that entire engine overhauled because I didn't get it done. And the same is true in your marriage, man. If we're not putting in the work to pursue Christ, to, to hunger and thirst for his righteousness, to fix our gaze on his beauty, that he would be the greatest treasure in our life, someday it's gonna come back to bite you because the engine's gonna break. It's gonna break. What do I do right now if I feel like my marriage is falling apart? Well, increase your appetite for righteousness. You must increase your affections for Christ and you must extend those affections to your spouse. I love how Tim Keller puts it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, which is a great work if you've never read it. He writes this, he says, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, not if, but when that happens, you must remember that the essence of marriage is that it's a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. I love that line. So what do you do? You do acts of love, despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, or you might feel sympathetic, or feel in, in, um, eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they'll become less frequent and deep, and you'll become more consistent in your feelings. This is what can happen if you decide, if you decide to love. Right, what Tim Keller is saying is, man, you made a choice, and the choice was not to feel love. You made a covenant. The covenant was not to feel love. It was to extend love. That's the covenant. No matter what, on the days when I do not feel righteous, when I do not feel love, I extend it. 
and I seek it. I seek righteousness and I extend love to my spouse even on those days. And I, I know, I know, I know that for those of you in the room who maybe, maybe you're going through this right now, your, your marriage is just crumbling around you at the moment. I know you may think, Josh, you have no idea. I'm not trying to make light of it. I, I know it's unbelievably complicated. What you're going through right now is an unbelievably complex. And I'm not trying to say it's not. But what else do you really have? Like, what else are you really going to do? Yes, seek counseling. Yes, confide in your friends. But ultimately, what are you really going to do other than, other than completely thrust yourself upon Christ and say, my life is yours, it is not mine. And if my spouse walks out of me, they will walk out of me because I am treating them in every way, shape, or form that I possibly can as Jesus would treat them. I'm extending love and grace and mercy to them. I'm fighting for righteousness in my life. And if they, they want to walk out, then they're going to walk out on that. What, what else do you have? Two more and then we'll be done. What do I do right now if I'm being abused by my spouse or my children are being abused by my spouse? That might seem like a shocking, like why, why is that question in there, Josh? Um, when, you just, when you take the text in Matthew 5 by itself, right, where Jesus says, man, the only, the only ground you have for divorce is sexual immorality. Well, what if, what if I'm being abused by my spouse? What if my kids are being abused by my spouse? Is a question that's gonna come up out of that text. And so here's my answer. Get out of that house now. If that's you, if you're here this morning and that's you, remove yourself from that situation. Seek safety wherever you have to find it. I don't care where you have to go. Find safety for you. Find safety for your children, okay? We'll worry about the marriage later. Find safety for you. Find safety for your kids. That's not what Jesus is getting at in Matthew 5. He's not talking about what if, he's not what he's talking about. Now, when it comes to your marriage, um, we don't have time to get into this this morning, but when it comes to your marriage, okay, listen, um, I believe that based on Scripture in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 12 through 16, Paul um, addresses marriage, um, and he addresses divorce, and, he, and it's kind of like what, all these what-if questions. What if this happens, and what if this and this and this happens? But Paul stands up in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, listen, I, not the Lord, okay, I, not the Lord. So this is not God saying this. This is Paul saying this. Here's what I think you should do. I believe that the, that the lead shepherds of Flourishing Grace, or the elders of the church, we, we call them lead shepherds here at Flourishing Grace because in our culture here, that, that word elder has been completely misused and, and misunderstood. Um, but the leaders of the church have a God-given authority to speak into that marriage. Um, and ultimately what Paul's saying is, listen, on the day of Christ, when I stand before him, I, if I'm wrong, I'll take the blame. Here's what I think you should do. And so the lead shepherds of the church have the God-given authority to speak into that marriage and say, listen, on the day of Christ, if, if I'm wrong, I'll take the blame, but here's what I think you should do. So, so if that's true of you, if there's something going on in your marriage that is just super complicated, you need to, you need to confide in the lead shepherds of the church. 
and say, I don't know what to do. I know that by scripture I am bound to my marriage. I've made this covenant, but here's what's going on. What do I do? You need to, you need to seek the lead shepherds of the church and seek protection amongst the lead shepherds of the church. Last question, and then we'll be done. What do I do if I'm already divorced? Which I know some of us in this room are. What do I do? As a follower of Jesus, I'm gonna give you a biblical position. I said earlier, it does not matter what Josh Knight thinks. It does not matter what you think or what anybody thinks. I'm gonna give you what the Bible says. Right, Jesus says in Matthew 5, this should only be in the case of sexual immorality. We've already covered that. We've already talked about it, okay? Um, if if um, and you chose to divorce your spouse because they were sexually unfaithful to you, then by the word of God, you are freed from that covenant and free to remarry if that's what you choose to do. Not required, but free to. Well, let's say for a moment that that's not it. You chose to divorce your spouse for another reason. Not, not under the blessing of the leaders of the church or not under the authority of scripture. You chose to, um, for your own reason, leave your spouse. We're commanded as followers of Christ to seek restoration with that person. That's the reality of it, man. When, when we divorced our God, when we turned our back on him, when we walked away from him, he did not walk away from us. He came after us. He pursued us. Even in our sin, even in our brokenness, he loved us and he kept coming after you and after me. We go back, we seek restoration with that person. We seek to restore that marriage. Now, if they've already moved on, they've already remarried, or maybe you've already moved on, you've already remarried, then don't, don't seek to restore that marriage, okay? Stay married. But if not, that's the command of Scripture. And if not, if they've already moved on, they've already remarried, but you have not, or maybe they won't restore, you are not free to remarry. This is not my teaching. This is the teaching of the Lord. You're not free to remarry. You're bound by that oath. You're bound by that covenant that you made, that you chose to make before them. And if they have not broken it, if they have not broken it by sexual immorality, then neither are you allowed to break it. You're not free to move on. But you are free from your sin. And you must understand this. You must feel the weight of this. When Christ endured the cross, he endured it for those who would endure, who would endure their marriage covenants and for those who would not endure their marriage covenants. We've all failed him, but he has not failed us. We endured, he endured the pain. He endured the tor torture. He endured the mocking for those who would not endure the temptation of lust for those who would not endure the temptation of adultery, and for those who would not endure the temptation of divorce. And because he has endured for you, even though you could not endure, he should be the greatest treasure in your life. So whether your marriage is great, whether your marriage hasn't, hasn't even started yet, or whether your marriage um, is on the rocks, or whether your marriage is completely gone, seek Christ. See the eternal weight of beauty that is within him. See him as the God of all things. See him as the God who loves you despite of who you are, despite your failure, despite your brokenness, despite my failure, despite my brokenness. He loves you. He adores you. He desires a relationship with you no matter what. 
So find him, seek him, be satisfied with him. He will satisfy you more than any other human relationship ever could satisfy you. And only then, only when you're fully satisfied in Christ, only then, only then will you understand the Sermon on the Mount. Only then will you understand his teaching on divorce and marriage. When he is your greatest joy, when he is your greatest delight, only then will you actually be free. Let me pray for you all. Jesus, this morning we come before you. We throw ourselves upon your grace and upon your mercy this morning. Cry out to you. I know, I know again that so many of us in this room, so many of us, this topic, this subject brings up all sorts of pain, all sorts of sorrow, all sorts of issues from our past, hurts and wounds. Father, I know that if we were to skip over it, to gloss over it, to just tack it on to the end of something else, that we would just be unfaithful to your word and that we would be in sin for that. And so we lift high your word, we preach it faithfully. And we just ask that you, would, that you would use it in the hearts of the people who have gathered here this morning. That your word would actually bring comfort, not pain. That it would be the ointment of healing over the wounds that we have caused, the pain that we have created, or that other people in our lives have created. But this is your word, and this call to righteousness, this call to cling to a Savior who has clung to us, that would be freeing for us this morning. So would you stir right now within us, within our heavy hearts, within the the weight of this room, would the weight of your glory far outweigh it? Would you stir in our hearts a greater affection for you, a greater joy, that we might leave this place this morning filled with joy, even though we've come and we've encountered your word and that word was heavy and that word was hard, the teaching was hard. Your glory is greater. Your love is greater. So might we leave this place with joy. Might we leave this place with healing. Put these things in your name. In the name of Jesus, amen. Once you guys go ahead and then stand, we're going to sing one last song together this morning.